One day, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. Now Boaz, with whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours. Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfume, and get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned and there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? he asked. I am your servant Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all that you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I am a guardian redeemer of our family, there is another who is more closely related than than I. Stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good, let him redeem you. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognised, and he said, No one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor. He also said, bring me the shawl you are wearing and hold it out. When she did so, he poured into it six measures of barley and placed the bundle on her. Then he went back to town. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, how did it go, my daughter? Then she told her everything Boaz had done for her and added, he gave me these six measures of barley saying, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then Naomi said, Wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens, for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat down there just as the guardian redeemer he had mentioned came along. Boaz said, come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Boaz took ten of the elders of the town and said, sit here, and they did so. Then he said to the guardian redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me, so I will know. For no one has the right to do it except you, and I am the next in line. I will redeem it, he said. Then Boaz said, On the day you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. At this, the guardian redeemer said, Then I cannot redeem it, because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. Now, in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, 
One party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the method of legalising transactions in Israel. So the guardian redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself, and he removed his sandal. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion and Marlon. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabite, Marlon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property, so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown. Today you are witnesses. Then the elders and all the people at the gate said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the family of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar brought to Judah. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, uh, what we know not, we ask that you would teach us. Lord, what we have not, we ask that you would give us. Uh, And what we are not, we ask that you would make us, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Uh, I can't imagine uh, what it would be like to be homeless uh, or to be desperately poor. Uh, I can't imagine what it would be like in that situation to have no help. Uh, A few years ago, in the aftermath of the global financial crisis, there was an episode of Four Corners that looked at some of the people who had lost their homes in the US housing market crash. Uh, These people uh, who had had homes and had jobs uh, and were paying off their mortgage, so they'd they'd owned a home or they were paying it off, uh, they had jobs, but they'd lost almost everything. Uh, Many of them were living in their cars in in church parking lots. What struck me forcefully uh, as I watched that uh, documentary was the realisation that no matter what happened to me, I would never be in that same situation. That is, I would never find myself living in a car even if I lost everything, because there would always be the church and there would always be my own family. Uh, What struck me was the aloneness uh, of these people, not just, uh, you know, in in their desperate poverty. Uh, In many ways, I think that's the kind of scenario that Ruth and Naomi were faced with here in this account uh, in the book of Ruth. Uh, There's these two women with nowhere to go and no one to turn to. Uh, They they have to resort to to picking grain up from what's left behind. That is, they are alone until Boaz enters the fray. Uh, It's worth recounting the story so far. In chapters 1 and 2, there's this lady named Naomi. She's fled from the land of Israel to a country named Moab because of a famine. While she was there, her two sons married... Uh, But then tragedy strikes, her sons die and her husband dies and she's left with her two daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah, or Oprah. Uh, uh, And eventually, uh, Naomi dies, she returns to Israel and Ruth goes with her back to Israel as well. 
Initially, when Naomi gets back, she's bitter. Uh, She's bitter about what God has uh, done in her life. But in chapter 2, things begin to look up because Ruth all of a sudden finds herself working in the field of this generous man by the name of Boaz. He turns out to be a man of incredible kindness. And it turns out at the end of chapter 2 that Boaz is actually a close relative of Naomi's. And so Naomi, in this chapter, hatches a cunning plan. Uh, Naomi's concern is to provide for uh, herself, but also for Ruth. And so in verse 1 of chapter 3, she says to Ruth, My daughter, I need to find a home for you where you will be provided for. Now Boaz, with whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours. Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfume and get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. So here's Naomi's basic plan. It's for Ruth to catch Boaz as a husband. Uh, It's just straight out of the pages of of Emma, right? Uh, (laughs) That's right, Bianca's nodding, yeah. Uh, Ruth is to uh, wash, uh, 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 you know, to wash, she's to put on perfume, she's to put on her best clothes uh, and to make sure she looks particularly attractive. Uh, Then she's to wait to get Boaz alone uh, and after Boaz has finished eating uh, and drinking, she's to follow Boaz to the threshing floor, wait till he's asleep, and then lie down uh, at, his, uh, at his feet. It seems like a pretty kind of risque plan, actually. Uh, Ruth is to go alone. Uh, she's to go at night. Uh, she's to lie down at his feet. It's a bit hard, actually, I think, to work out what exactly Naomi is intending by all this. Uh, It's hard to know whether she was thinking a little bit more than just kind of making wedding plans. But whatever Naomi has in mind, I think, in what follows, Ruth and Boaz show themselves to be people of great honour and dignity. They show themselves to be people above reproach. Uh, Ruth does what Naomi says. Uh, She she goes, she follows Boaz after he's finished eating and drinking. She lies down on the threshing Uh, room floor, she uh, uncovers his feet uh, and then lies down at his feet. Uh, The reason she uncovers his feet is probably just so that when he woke up, he'd look down at his feet, noticing that they were cold, and look down and go, oh, goodness me, there's a woman lying at my feet. Um, Goodness. (laughs) Slightly disturbing, but... In the middle of the night, Boaz wakes up and he does that. He looks down at his feet and there, lying at his feet, uh, is this woman and he doesn't know who it is. And so he asks the obvious question, who are you? Uh, And Ruth replies, she's probably given this some thought, I suspect, I am your servant Ruth. Spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. Uh, There are two parts of Ruth's request that I think need a bit more explanation. Uh, The first is the reference to a guardian redeemer. So the idea of a redeemer has a long history among the people of God in the Old Testament. In Leviticus 25, the term redeemer is used to refer to a close relative who effectively bails out uh, another relative out of their poverty. Uh, 
that's kind of what Boaz does later in chapter 4. But in Numbers 35, there's another kind of redeemer. That is, it could be a person who avenged the unjust death of one of their relatives. So there's, there's different ways uh, that the Redeemer was understood. But Ruth doesn't seem to have either of those ideas particularly in mind here uh, when she says to Boaz, you are our guardian Redeemer. What she's picking up on, I think, is this idea, this kind of general idea, this broad idea that close relatives had a moral responsibility to help those in need. And what Ruth is asking Boaz to do is to take up that responsibility. You're related to us, you're close to us, you need to help us, would you please help us? Of course, Boaz has already been doing that, he's been uh, looking after Ruth, uh, you know, providing grain for her, you know, giving her water to drink and food to eat. But now Ruth is asking him to go a step further. The other part of the request, then, is, Boaz's, uh, is the request for Boaz to spread the corner of his garment over Ruth, uh, which is not actually a request to spread the corner of his garment over Ruth, uh, <laughs> which is what it sounds like, but it's a, it's a metaphor, right? So it was a metaphor used in those days for marriage. He's saying, uh, Ruth is saying to Boaz, will you marry me? More, uh, more literally, the expression is, spread your wings over your servant, It's an expression of uh, protection and care uh, and loving concern. Actually, a very similar expression has already been used in Ruth in chapter 2 and verse 12, when Boaz says to Ruth, May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. So Ruth has, has... has come back to Israel to take refuge under the wings of God, and now she's saying to Boaz, spread your wings over me too. In fact, I think what Ruth is asking Boaz to do is she's asking Boaz to be the means by which God's wings enfold and encompass her. It's important, I think, for us to remember that Sometimes the means by which God answers our own prayers is us. God prays, prayed that, that God's wings would enfold Ruth. And actually the means by which God's wings enfolded Ruth was Boaz. Sometimes uh, we are the means by which God answers uh, our own prayers. But this expression here, spread your wings over me, is reminiscent, I think, of other words in the Bible as well. Uh, Think of the words of Jesus in Matthew 23. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. So Jesus looks out over the harassed, evil, and desperately, desperately poor Uh, morally and spiritually poor, he looks out over the city of Jerusalem and he offers them the kind of protection that Ruth seeks from Boaz. Jesus' desire as he looks out over Jerusalem is to gather them under his wing, to take them in his care, to provide for them, to look after them. And actually Jesus' desire for you is the same. His desire for you is to gather you under his wings. 
to take you into his care, to provide for you, to rescue you and to look after you. Jesus says that the people of Jerusalem were not willing. He was willing, how he longed to gather them under his wings, but they weren't willing. Uh, The problem is not that God's not willing to enfold us in his wings. The problem is that we aren't willing to take up uh, his offer. But the point is here, do you see, that the book of Ruth is not just a love story, it's a picture of the gospel. May you find rest under God's wings. Spread your wings over me. Ruth's request is a picture of what God does in the gospel in Jesus Christ. Uh, It's a wonderful picture of God's love for us and God's offer of protection and salvation uh, to those in need. Well, uh, Ruth proposes, very countercultural, and Boaz is keen to accept. And no wonder he's keen to accept because uh, she's an extraordinary woman. Uh, Boaz says in verse 10, The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied, This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the, other, uh, the younger men, whether rich or poor, and now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. What kind of woman does Boaz see lying at his feet? He sees someone who's kind. He sees someone who's looked after her mother-in-law, someone who's left her own country and followed her mother-in-law back. Someone who's gone out into the fields every day to collect what's left over from the workers in order to provide food for herself and her mother-in-law. He sees someone whose kindness has been on public display. And and he sees someone who's received Boaz's own kindness with grace and dignity. Boaz also calls uh, Ruth a woman of noble character. Uh, That's the same expression used in Proverbs 31 to describe a woman uh, of impeccable character. You might know that. That passage, it's, uh, it's quite a, an incredible passage. I once made a t-shirt, actually. I, had, I went through a screen printing phase. Uh, <laughs> I didn't really. Uh, but uh, I, I once screen printed a t-shirt and it said, it, it had the words of, in Hebrew from, uh, from Proverbs 31, Eshet chayil mi yimtza, which means a woman of noble character who can find... Uh, Uh, thankfully, I never met any uh, woman who could read uh, Hebrew. Uh, I don't wear it so much anymore. But, uh, but the point is, back to the point, the point is that Boaz says to Ruth, I have found you, right? Proverbs 31 says, wow, uh, you know, uh, it's not, probably says it not only about women, by the way. It says about men as well. Like, that is noble men, noble women. They're, they're, so, they're so hard to find. And yet Boaz says, I have found one in Ruth. You're a, you're a woman of incredible character and incredible no, nobility. And actually, the word also means incredible strength. Uh, it's important, I think, to realize how much character lies at the heart uh, of this impending marriage. Boaz uh, is a man of incredible character too. 
And the implication in what he says to Ruth is that it's his character that has led her to him as well. So he says, you have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. That is, she could have done that. She could have run after rich men. She could have run after, uh, you know, more glamorous people. She could have run uh, run after younger men. Uh, But she approaches the man who has shown her incredible kindness uh, and generosity. In other words, I think, uh, if you were going to marry someone, Ruth is the kind of person that you would want to marry. And Boaz is the kind of man man that you would want to marry. Their character is on display in other ways too. As I said before, this whole situation is risque, it's fraught with danger... Uh, It's fraught with this uh, opportunity for compromise. That's reiterated later in verse 14 when Boaz sends Ruth home before dawn so that no one can see that she's been there at the threshing floor. This is a compromising situation. Uh, And yet, although it appears compromising, uh, nothing nothing happens. Uh, Although it has the risk of compromise... Boaz and Ruth show themselves to be people of immense godliness. I don't think there's any other word to describe uh, these two people uh, and this whole situation other than virtuous. I think there's something actually, I think there's actually something of a contrast going on here with the book of Judges and some of the events that take place in that book. So the book of Judges, we're told at the beginning of Ruth that this is in the days that the judges were judging. This is happening at the same time. And it's enlightening to think about some of the stories that occur in that book, some of the events that are taking place at the same time uh, as Ruth and Boaz uh, are, are getting together. Uh, so you might think of Samson. Samson one day is just walking down the road. He sees some attractive woman uh, I don't, you don't even get the impression that he speaks to her. He goes home and he says to his parents, I want to marry that woman. Uh, it turns out that she's a complete pagan. She has no interest in God. Uh, and it turns out that she's deceitful and manipulative. Uh, in the end, he completely ditches her uh, and then hooks up later on with Delilah, who, of course, isn't uh, much better. She's also attractive, but also completely manipulative uh, and destructive, and she uh, and treacherous, and she proves his undoing. Uh, then there's the account of the man who's nearly packed raped by a bunch of other men, uh, and only escapes because he lets them rape his concubine uh, to death. It's quite a different picture, isn't it? Uh, against that background of what's going on in the book uh, in the land of Israel, here are Ruth and Boaz. An opportunity for compromise, but no compromise. Ruth and Boaz offer us a wholly different picture, a picture of integrity and kindness. Uh, and what other people and what people used to call, we don't use the word much anymore, but what people used to call chastity. Chastity used to be an ideal. It used to be an honourable and dignified thing. And now actually to be chaste is an embarrassment. Isn't it? Oh, how embarrassing. How embarrassing that, uh, that people aren't having sex with whoever they want, whenever they want. How embarrassing to live like that. 
But actually, the picture of Ruth and Boaz shines brightly, doesn't it? Of how much better that really is. It shines brightly, not just against the backdrop of the culture of Israel in the time of the judges. It shines brightly against our own world. You only have to turn on, you know, log on to Amazon or uh, iTunes or Netflix or something like that to be confronted by book covers and film covers uh, offering, uh, you know, stories not of not just not even of romance actually but stories of sex and of lust and of more sex. And people are devouring it like never before. Sometimes I get links, you know, to uh, sales on Amazon sometimes, you know, and it says they're having their monthly sale. I think, oh, yeah, I'll go and see, maybe I'll get an Agatha Christie, you know, for a couple of dollars or something like that. And you go on, and honestly, I just get tired of it. There's, you know, a thousand books, and they're, and they're all like, uh, you know, rom- not romance novels, what people used to call bodice rippers, uh, that is, they're all just books about sex. And I just think, if there's so many on here, what is that saying about the market that's available for them? You see, the message that we're bombarded with uh, is that the life to be longed for is a life of free sex. The world offers that as their vision of beauty. What's a beautiful life? Well, it isn't beautiful. It's actually vile and it's destructive. Uh, It's destroying people's lives. It's destroying people's happiness because God didn't make us to live like that. Uh, And when we live counter to the operating manual, to the operator's instructions, it damages us. It promises us joy, but what it delivers is short-term thrills and a life of long-term sadness and brokenness. Well, your life might be more judges than Ruth, but the good news uh, of the gospel is that there's hope to come back from that. The good news of the gospel is that if your life is more judges than Ruth, then it's possible to be forgiven and cleansed through Jesus Christ. In the New Testament, our relationship with Jesus is described as a marriage relationship. But but not just as kind of any old marriage relationship where both people take in their weaknesses and their faults and it ends up blowing up. (laughs) No, the marriage relationship that we have with Jesus is a marriage where we take in our imperfections and our faults and Jesus takes in his perfection. And actually, the perfections of Jesus are so astonishing and so pure and so holy and so powerful that that marriage, that relationship with Jesus does not leave us the same. His perfection is so powerful and so glorious that it cleans us up, that it buries our sin and it transforms us into his image. Paul says in Ephesians 5, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without any stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. You might be really broken uh, from your own poor choices about sex. That might have been uh, this past week. That might have been 20 or 30 years ago. Uh, But the good news of the gospel is that there's hope for forgiveness and cleansing from Jesus. 
You can pour all that out uh, at the foot of the cross and know that God will forgive you and restore you. But it's important, I think, for us to take a moment and to see the beauty and the goodness of this relationship with Ruth and Boaz because it's, it gives us, in a world so distorted, so wrong, it gives us a glimpse of something better. It gives us a glimpse of, glimpse of something inestimably glorious and virtuous. It's a glimpse of the gospel, of a good relationship, of a cherished relationship. In a world obsessed with beauty and sex and lust, Ruth and Boaz are like an oasis in a parched land. Uh, it's a, they are a place of rest and restoration uh, amid the gaudy lights of a hypersexualized world. So Ruth asks Boaz to marry her. Boaz is keen to accept. She's a good woman. She's a noble woman, a strong woman. But there is a problem. Uh, even as Boaz says to Ruth, I'll do what you ask, he also says in verse 12, although it's true, you never like to hear that word, although, although it's true that I'm a guardian redeemer of our family, there is another who is more closely related than I. Stay here for the night and in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your garden, guardian redeemer, good, let him redeem you. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, uh, I will do it. Lie here until morning. The problem is, uh, in this situation, that there is a relative who is nearer, who's closer than Boaz, who has the primary responsibility to redeem and to care for Ruth. And it would be inappropriate for Boaz to step in ahead of that person uh, without giving that other person kind of a chance for honour and respectability and, and generosity uh, by rescuing Ruth and Naomi. So even in the way that Boaz handles this obstacle, he still shows himself a man of honour, right? He could just you know, ride roughshod over the rights and the claims of this other man, but he doesn't do that. Uh, he shows himself to be a man of honour. He sends Ruth home with this shawl laden full of grain uh, and then he heads to the town gate and it just so happens that as he's going there, as he gets to the gate, that the man that he's looking for is there. It's another one of these uh, remarkable coincidences in the book of uh, Ruth. Boaz finds this man, he gathers 10 elders from the town to witness the events, that's for legal reasons, he needs people to see what happens. And he explains in front of these elders to this other man what the situation is. He says in verse 3, Naomi, who's come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. He's setting him up. <laughs> I thought I should do it in front of all these other people. Uh, if you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me, so I will know, for no one has the right to do it except you, and I am next in line. Uh, so he tells this, Boaz tells this man, uh, Naomi has a piece of land, uh, it can be redeemed, and, and he has, this other guy, has the first option on redeeming it. That brings us, this whole deal brings us back to the idea of the guardian redeemer, which Ruth had mentioned earlier. And it's helpful to turn back to Leviticus 25 just to kind of get our heads oriented a little bit better about what's going on. So flip back to Leviticus 25. 
So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus 25. Uh, Leviticus 25, verse 25. Where it says, so, so here God is giving the people a law about caring for people like Ruth and Naomi who fall into times of financial crisis. So it says there in verse 25, if one of your fellow Israelites becomes poor and sells some of their property, their nearest relative is to come and redeem what they have sold. If, however, there is no one to redeem it for them, but later on they prosper and acquire sufficient means to redeem it themselves, they are to determine the value for the years since they sold it and refund the balance to the one to whom they sold it. They can then go back to their own property. So there's a couple of ways that they can redeem the land. They can uh, redeem it themselves if they come back into money. Uh, the other option is for a relative to redeem it on their behalf. So what happens is, what might have happened, uh, situations, for instance, is someone's business might have gone bust, they don't have any money anymore, uh, they need to get uh, enough to live on, so what they do is they sell their land. Uh, but then the problem is, without their land, they now have no livelihood, they have no means for survival. So what you really need is somebody, a relative a generous relative, to come in to buy that land back, to redeem it on their behalf in order that they might continue uh, to use it. So, what, so it appears that what has happened in the book of Ruth is that uh, Ruth and Naomi have had land. It's been sold probably when Naomi left with her husband uh, for Moab. They left, they left everything behind because of the famine. They sold the land. Now they've come back and they don't have any... They don't have anything. They have no livelihood. And Boaz realises that part of redeeming and rescuing Ruth and Naomi means buying back their land uh, for them, redeeming their land. Uh, the other guy can't believe his luck. He's thinking to himself, well, wow, this is fantastic. My, uh, my burgeoning kind of farming empire is going to grow again. And he goes, yeah, give me the land. I'll redeem it. Uh, it's only then that Boaz actually mentions the kind of the catch. And the catch in verse 5 is, on the day you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. The catch is that redeeming the land brings Ruth and Naomi with it. You have to look after them. And in fact, he has to marry Ruth. Uh, now, there was a kind of a similar obligation in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 25, uh, if a lady's husband died uh, without her having any children, that is, without anyone kind of being left to look after her, it was the responsibility of the dead man's brother uh, to marry and look after his sister-in-law. Because otherwise, the reason for that was, otherwise Ruth would be, like people like Ruth, would be left destitute. Now, that's not exactly what's going on here. Boaz isn't the, isn't the brother-in-law or anything like that. Rather, what Boaz seems to be doing is raising a moral rather than a legal obligation. Uh, and that, I think, is why he's doing this in public. So what he's, what he's doing is he's bringing this other guy before all the elders and he's saying, look, you have the right to buy the land, but we all know, all of us here know, that the right thing to do is to take Ruth and Naomi as well. We all know that that's really the the, the good and honest thing to do. And at that, the man says, well, actually, no, I don't think I want the land after all. 
Boaz's strategy is something of a kind of a public humiliation, actually. This guy is not interested in generosity and kindness. He's interested in kind of growing his empire. And he's worried that in taking on Ruth and Naomi, that is actually going to cause more problems for his empire, uh, not less. In the end, at the end of the day, the other man, the other guardian redeemer, is worried about self-preservation rather than about uh, loving kindness and generosity. Well, that's not Boaz. Boaz is not interested in the land. He is interested in kindness. And he shows that his kindness extends not just to leaving a few bales of straw on the ground for Ruth to pick up when she's harvesting the field. Uh, he shows that his, his kindness extends to costly redemption. He's willing to buy Naomi and Ruth's future for them. He's willing to take great cost on himself out of love, not only for Ruth, but also for her mother-in-law, Naomi. And again, I think it's important for us to realize that the actions of Boaz here are a reflection of the character of God. Uh, just as Boaz reflects the loving kindness of God back in chapter 2, so also Boaz reflects God as our Redeemer. In lots of places through the Bible, God is called our Redeemer, and it picks up on that, the same word which is being used here to describe Boaz. So listen to the, some of the passages which the Bible uses to describe God as our Redeemer. Exodus 6.6, 6, Therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. Uh, or Isaiah 43.1, But now this is what the Lord says, He who created you, Jacob, He who formed you, Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. Or Hosea 13.14, I will deliver this people from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. Where, O death, are your plagues? Where, O grave, is your destruction? Or that famous passage from Job 19, I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand on the earth and after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. God is the Redeemer who redeems his people with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. He is the Redeemer who redeems people from the grave. Listen uh, finally to these words from Isaiah 54 which are, Incredibly reminiscent of the story of Ruth. God says, For your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. The Lord will call you back as if you were a wife deserted and distressed in spirit. A wife who married young, only to be rejected, says your God. For a brief moment I abandoned you. But with deep compassion, I will bring you back. In a surge of anger, I hid my face from you for a moment. But with everlasting kindness, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. What kind of God is God? He's a Redeemer. He gathers the outcasts under his wings. He gathers the needy, the poor, the sinners. But more than that, he pays the price to set them free. It costs to redeem Ruth. And it cost God to redeem us. A price needed to be paid to release us from the sin and the condemnation which we stand uh, with before God. 
we are poor and we're destitute. Not, not poor and destitute uh, like Ruth was, materially, maybe. But poor and destitute spiritually, morally. We're sinners in need of a saviour. And the good news of the Bible is that Jesus has paid the price that needed to be paid. God wasn't interested in expanding his empire. I'm sorry, that redemption is too risky, too costly. No, God was interested in loving kindness. Whatever it cost. Paul writes in Colossians 1, For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Just as Boaz redeemed Ruth from poverty and despair, God redeems all who put their hope in Jesus. And like Boaz, God wasn't worried what it would cost him. It cost Jesus, his son, and he paid the price willingly. Well, there might be some people here who know how far they are from God, uh, who know what the cost is, uh, and people who, who think to themselves, who look at what they have to offer God and they realise there's no way they can pay. You see the cost, you see what you've got, and it's nothing. Well, the good news is, uh, for you, for all of us, is that God has paid that price in Jesus Christ. Jesus' death is enough to release you from all you owe. Not a cent more is needed. Uh, there might be some here too who have no idea who, how far they are from God. No idea what it costs to get back to God. You, you don't care. You've never thought about it. You kind of think, oh, yeah. You know, just a couple of good things, you know, just do a few good things for God, you know, should be nice to a few people and, you know, that'll kind of, that'll be okay. But realise that, please understand that the cost of getting you back to God is the death of God's Son. If you have no idea how far you are from God, or if you don't care how far you are from God, please realize that God cared so much that he gave up his own son to redeem those who put their trust in him. Uh, but many of us, I think, know the price. Uh, we've been redeemed through Jesus Christ. Uh, we've been brought near. We know the love of God in Christ. Uh, but we so easily forget, I think, don't we? Uh, we so easily forget how much God has paid, how far away we were. Uh, it's, so hard, it's so hard, isn't it, to keep going back. It would have been so hard for Ruth 20 years later to remember what it was like to be destitute uh, and to remember what it was like on that day that Boaz said, you know what, come under my wings. And I think it could be like that kind of for us in the Christian life. It's hard to remember what it was like to be destitute. It's hard to remember what it was like on that day when God said, come under my wings. And we said, yep. But the story of Ruth uh, and the story of Boaz is a means of God. It's a means of grace to open our eyes again to see the wonder and the glory of the gospel. 
to see the cost, God's son, and to marvel at the goodness of God. Over and again, this story is not just a, it's not a romance. It's not unpacking for us the, happy, the couple who lived happily ever after. This is a story which unpacks for us the God who loves us uh, and redeems us. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a loving God, a redeemer. Lord, we thank you that you've paid the price because a price needed to be paid because of our sin and our rebellion against you. All of us have turned aside in many different ways. All of us have chased other gods. All of us have made ourselves to be God. Uh, And yet in your love, Lord, you drew near to us in our poverty and our destitution. And you reached out and you spread your wings over us. And you gathered us as a hen gathers the chicks under her arms. Lord, help us to hear the call of Jesus, to come to him. Uh, Help us to hear that call and to respond and to come under your wings and to know your love. And Lord, for those of us who've been sitting under your wings for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, Lord, we ask that you would open our eyes, the eyes of our hearts again, to see what a good place that is to be. And help us seeing that to want others to see that too. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.